Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime. Hello, Clock Dodgers. Are you guys using No Halftime yet? Do you guys have the app downloaded on your iPhone or your Android device? If not, um, you need to go ahead and do that now. Um, If you're new to the show, I understand you have an excuse. If you're not new, you don't have an excuse and you are in trouble. (laughs) Seriously, though. Um, Right now, if you guys go to your app store, whatever device you're using, uh, look for No Halftime or go to nohalftime.com, download the app. When you're actually registering your name and signing everything up, use the promo code CLOCK, C-L-O-C-K, at sign up, and you will get $10 instantly on your account. It may take up to 24 hours, so if you don't see it right away, don't panic. Um, Also, if you would like a nice, high-quality shirt that says no halftime on it, representing out there in them streets, then go ahead and email them or message them on Twitter. Let them know Clock Dodger sent you, and you will get a free T-shirt. So, free T-shirt. T-shirt, $10, sports, DFS. I mean, I don't know where the downside is here. So let's go ahead and jump on that right now, ASAP, right now. NoHalftime.com It is a daily fantasy sports app for player versus player challenges. You can challenge your friends, your family, people you don't know. It doesn't really matter because the bragging and the money is waiting for you. Fantasy football, fantasy baseball, basketball, soccer, uh, golf, literally all the options are at your expose, you know, right there for you to use. They're all there. There's no um, limits to anything you use. And I'm giving you $10 to get started with. Well, I mean, you could play it at, at free, you know, to practice and everything, but I'm giving you $10 to use and you could take people's money. So get on there, get your bragging rights, and let's get this cracking. I mean, football season is very close. Uh, We're talking about, I think, September 8th is opening day, and you may even be able to play no halftime in the preseason. So shake that rust off. It's getting real, folks. Guys, let's go ahead for the show today. I I must give you a fair warning really quick. Um, The audio was very screwed up um we did this over the internet and i don't know if it was the wi-fi or if it was the internet or if it was the recording um service we were using for the phone call connection i don't know what it was you know if you if you always listen to the episodes you know we don't we don't mess with the bad quality we don't have um any kind of issues with that normally but that happened on this episode i i still wanted to share the episode because the guest is actually billy corbin um, you know, producer, creator of uh, stuff like Cocaine Cowboys, uh, ESPN 30, uh, 30 for 30s, like Broke, um, The U, The U2, um, a bunch of different stuff. You know who he is. I don't have to really um, give you any more examples, but the quality goes in and out. Um, just bear with it, guys. It was a great conversation. Billy was an awesome dude. Lots of good information. Uh, very entertaining. So let's go ahead and get that started. Just bear with me. I apologize. Either way, though, I promise it's, it's worth listening to. I wouldn't put it out there for you guys if it wasn't. Again, I can't I can't stress it enough. I, I really apologize about this. It doesn't feel good um, to have this happen, but um, you, you, it, it'll be fine. Just just you'll be you'll be good, guys. I appreciate you for listening. Let's go. Cannot win with him, cannot cope with him, can't do it. Play with the game. I mean, listen, we talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We talking about practice. Down goes Frazier, down goes Frazier. Touchdown! 
are now locked in to the Clock Dodgers Podcast. Welcome to episode 32 of the Clock Dodgers podcast. I am your host, Neil, and today is your typical South Florida day. Uh, the sun is beaming and the palm trees are blowing a little in the wind. And then the next minute it's kind of raining and then, you know, back to sunny again, which has a slight bit of irony because my guest today uh, reps South Florida, you know, harder than anybody I know. Um, it's truly an honor for me to have this conversation with my guest today. He is a documentary and film director who has released three 30 for 30s with ESPN. He's created documentaries that are you know, highly recognized and loved by everyone who watches them. My guest today is none other than Billy Corbin. How are you doing today, Billy? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate you coming on. So for those who don't know, really quickly, um, you are the man you know, responsible for documentaries like Cocaine Cowboys 1 and 2, uh, ESPN's 30 for 30, you know, Broke, The U, 1 and 2, Dogfight, all, all kinds of stuff. And so you know, what I love so much about all the, the, the work that you put out there is, um, you know, nothing that you put out there is shit. <laughs> and um, typically when you list, you know, these many projects that people get into, typically, you know, one or two doesn't maybe hit like the other ones do or whatever the case may be. But with everything, you know, you've done it, it has, you know, and so it really shows your, your passion, dedication. And so um, I'm really looking forward to having, you know, this conversation with you that. today. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't know that it's true. I mean, you've had a couple of, uh, We've had a couple of misses, both in terms, I think, of of, uh, of success and notoriety, but also things that I felt, you know, maybe creatively didn't quite reach reach the level that I that I would like it to. But I mean, that work now, you know, you got a lot of projects. I mean, I've lost count, you know, well over a dozen, and so, and you know, some things you're gonna you're gonna nail, and others you can't. I always say that the uh, that the job the uh, of a documentary filmmaker is to find a good story and then don't fuck it up, you know, and <laughs> And sometimes, sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get close, but not quite there. And you know, there's there's varying degrees of success. I mean, I, I could probably. What do I? I, I always say that. Um, uh, you know, people say, "Oh, this is a weird question to ask." But like, what are your? You know, do you have a favorite of your projects? You don't. And I was like, "Well, projects like this are kind of like like kids. You have a favorite, but you don't tell anybody who they are. You know, or like which one, which one, which ones they are. You know, and and so that's kind of like." Uh, you know, I, I think I can, with the benefit of hindsight and time, and you, know, you get a, gain a little bit of objectivity, and you realize like eh, some of them are better than others. You know, and sometimes when you're making them, you know that you can't, for whatever reason, whether it's budget, access to you know to certain interview subjects, so whatever it may be, sometimes you're in the midst of a project, and you're like, well, shit, this is never going to get <laughs> to where I want it to be, and and you know, you just you just know. I mean, you have to be aware, and and then I I read a lot of can't say I read them all, um, but I try to read as many as possible. So I always say that anybody who says, oh, I don't read, you know, my own reviews or reviews of my work, I think they're full of shit. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to read all the reviews um, and I read the bad ones twice because, um, you know, those are, the, those are the places where you might actually be able to, to learn something. Right. To get some constructive criticism. Well, so, and like and like you said, I'm sure, like you said, everyone asks you what's your favorite, you know, your favorite documentary, your favorite piece of work. Um, just curious, maybe maybe not your favorite, but is, is there anything that you've done that you you were mo- more you know emotionally invested in, or you know personally to you as as a man? Was there any was there anything that made more of an impact on your life as far as that goes, or was it still again just across them all? You know, there's been something on each of them. Well, I, I had an attitude. That was a really good question. So we kind of phrase it. Um, because yes, the answer is definitively yes. And I would say one of our last projects or most recently released 
projects, dogfight, uh, D-A-W-G. Um, I got to spell it because people, people thought for years we were working on a 30 for 30 about Michael Vick. So it's not that <laughs> kind of dogfight. It's not D-A-W-G dogfight about underground, uh, you know, unsanctioned paranormal brawls in the backyards of Southwest Miami Dane in the, in the prime, uh, West Prime area. Um, and these are human fights, but really tantamount to kind of human cop fighting. Um, and so that doc was, first of all, we worked the longest on that doc than anything else. I mean, we started shooting it in like 2008-ish. Um, and then, you know, it just came out in like 2015, you know, so I worked on it for a lot of years. Um, kind of got involved with the subjects. And that was a verite piece. It wasn't a retrospective or historical document where we interview people and try to, to recreate an era. This was actually us following around, you know, people who were living their lives in, in real time and, and contemporaneously. And, you know, as I said, you know, it was about the subculture of backyard fighters who basically give it all in a backyard for, for very little money, uh, just at a chance to, uh, get exposure to record, video record these events um, in a backyard in Brine and upload the footage to the internet and hope that they will get discovered by professional MMA trainers or promoters and then go pro. And, and over the years that we were working on the project, we did see at least four or five guys um, who, who went pro right from the backyard and then at least two guys that didn't live that long. So wow. it, got a little, it got a little hectic. It got a little got real shit got real you know? real quick and, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah and when you're working on a documentary and all of a sudden you feel like you're in the middle of it you know you've been working for almost a year or months on end and you're kind of spending a lot of time with people getting to know people and then you get a call in the morning yo this guy just got shot he's in a coma at jackson memorial hospital you know in trauma uh and machine is keeping him alive and they don't think he's gonna make it and wow like, you're just like yeah, it's just like, it's just, that's like a day of work for me on that project. You know, it was, it was a bad day of work, but like, that's how it went on that show. So yeah, to answer, answer your question, yes, like I definitely got more emotionally involved in, in, in dogfight than, than perhaps any of our, uh, I get emotionally involved in all of them, but as you said, if there's anyone more so than others, it would be dogfight. And we're doing a sequel now where if you follow uh, Dada 5000, who was the, the main subject of Dogfight 1, and uh, Kimbo Slice, who is a very famous MMA fighter who was a rival of Dada's, uh, they had their first uh, they had their first fight together, their last fight together uh, in February. Absolutely. And it was crazy. It was crazy what went down. And, and in, the, in the four months subsequent to that as well, I mean, just five months since then, I mean, just absolutely, absolute insanity. And, and I was there the whole time. I was in Houston during the fight. Dada essentially died in the ring like Apollo Creed and Rocky IV. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, he, he flatlined twice. They had to bring him back to life. You know, they had to, to revive him. Um, That's and, scary and stuff, man. Stopped. Yeah, after his heart stopped. And then, I mean, so like, I, I'm, I'm living it all over again. I'm sort of involved, you know, with, all over again. Yeah, and then unfortunately, you know, he passed away recently. So, um, you know, we've yeah, seen what... Yeah. After, after Gada survived the fight, what, four months later... Kimbo Slice at age, what, what is he, 42? How old is he? Kimbo yeah, he was Slice. super young for that, you know, to happen to him. Yeah. And so that's definitely so, unfortunate. And so, and when you know, that that was, you know, one of the, you know, the the best pieces of work that I've seen that you did. And I kind of just watched it on a whim. It wasn't even something that, you know, I was, I, I heard a lot about or anything. I just, you know, randomly kind of watched it. And I seen that you did. I was like, I got to see this. But when when watching stuff that you do, 
um, a lot of them have that, you know, obviously Miami or, you know, South Florida theme to it um, and, and more than one thing that you've done, of course. So um, the, the thing that I find interesting is it's the side of South Florida or Miami that you show um, that not everybody sees or is aware of, um, you know, the side that many like to pretend that doesn't exist, I guess you could say even, um, you know, you know, the, the, the rest of the country or tourists, you know, they, they see South Beach and Miami and they think, you know, drinking, beautiful women. But you always seem to highlight, you know, a side that is unlike any other um, or that or that anyone expects, um, you know, the illegal backyard fighting, the then, you know, the, the the Miami hurricanes, you know, the nastiness of that era for them, um, the, you know, the cocaine explosion in Miami. And so, you know, that side of Florida that I feel like you show is important, of course, because it's so deep rooted in the culture and in the communities. And so it's important to us. But what do you think, you know, wh why, why do you feel it's so important to share that side? And what is it do you think that makes the rest of the world who maybe don't come from there still connect with it so much? Well, I mean, <laughs> Miami is an international city. Right. You could probably go around the world, anywhere in the world, and, and, and say Miami or South Beach, and eyes will light up. You know, <laughs> people will immediately know what you're talking about. Um, so there's a lot of interest uh, in Miami all around the world. I mean, everybody wants to be in Miami. That's why they call it Miami. You know, everybody, everybody wants it. You know? <laughs> right. And, Everybody wants a piece of it, and everybody who's not here hates on it, you know, and, and it's really just because they, you know, want to be here. Uh, <laughs> they're just sort of envious, um, you know, but not everything in Miami is a Will Smith a video. Exactly. You know? um, all due respect. Um, and, and, and a lot of people are faking it to make it, so, so there's not even, um, you know, even some of the people that, that live that lifestyle aren't really living that lifestyle. They're kind of, you know, they're, they, they either obtained it through kind of uh, uh, questionable means, or they're living well beyond uh, their means, but that's just how you know what, what people do to kind of stand out in this kind of uh, superficial environment. But there is a part; there are parts of Miami that are very real. I mean, Miami-Dade County is a gigantic, gigantic place. It's got 34 different municipalities. Um, it covers a lot of square mileage. Um, it, you know, it's 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 uh, it, it, it's a very diverse place. And so, but it's also kind of self-segregated. I always say that like. Um, people have the misconception that Miami is some kind of melting pot, but it's, I think it's far more akin to like a TV dinner where sometimes the peas fall over into the mashed potatoes, <laughs> um, because we kind of self-segregate, you know, right. different neighborhoods that fly different flags or, or, or rep different, uh, uh nationalities. Um, you know, even in, in, in Miami beach, you go to North beach and they kind of even divide up South America and Central America by the block. You know, you got Mexican, Venezuelan, Brazilian, uh, you know, like as you as you drive through Puerto Rican, you got you're like, oh, you got to see which flag people are literally flying in the rear view to know which which block you're on. <laughs> right. Uh, in North Beach. So it's kind of interesting that when in addition, of course, little Havana and little Haiti and Hialeah and Aventura and Liberty City and Coconut Grove. And, you know, even Coconut Grove itself has two different sides to it. You know, um, you know, the east side and the west side um, that are that are that have very different complexions and demographics and, and, and socioeconomic uh, stats. So, um I just think that, that it's more people are more interested. Uh, you've seen South Beach. You've seen those 15 blocks of, of, of Ocean Drive so many times. It's well represented. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Particularly 10 blocks between 5th and 15th, you know, the famous strip there. Um, you know, you watch, I always make fun of this, you watch a Dolphins game or a Hurricanes game up at, you know, old Joe Robbie Stadium, and you'll see like a blimp shot of an aerial view of the stadium, and then they immediately crossfade or cut to Ocean Drive, the Colony <laughs> Hotel. And you're yep. like, what the fuck is this? You're like, that's that's like 20 miles away. Right? Exactly. Miles away. It's, 
was like you'd think that like the stadium was right on on South Beach or something on the water and everything. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's in fucking Miami Gardens, which is one of the toughest neighborhoods, you know, Carroll City there and everything in in, in town. Um, So like, you know, uh, it's the the people, the media, you know, does a lot to to feed into that kind of misconception uh, about Miami. But truth is, it's a very third world economy. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is, is wider here and, and getting wider by the year than almost any other place in the United States. So, so if you want to know, like they said, that, you know, the, the, the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. And that's true for much of Florida. The Florida of today yeah. is the America of tomorrow. Uh, you know, you've got to see what's going on down here and you'll know the challenges and the calamities that the nation will face. There's that famous saying, um, you know, which is why... It's such an interesting place to work uh, uh, and make documentaries is that L.A. is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. <laughs> and, you know, Miami and Florida have always been a sunny place for shady people. <laughs> exactly. A very unique place. And, you know, it's, it's, it's some people make it like the joke, you know, like the Florida man and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of jokes about it. But you like like you're saying, it's a very unique um, place for sure. And. And, and again, as highlighted in the stuff that you create, you know, your documentaries and everything, when, when you film stuff um, like the you or, or dogfight, um, you know, you, like you said, you're delving into some more, um, I, don't, I don't know, shady places or, you know, places that people don't typically, you know, want uncovered or that aren't uncovered. Um, do you get pushback at all in these kind of cases when you're in these communities or you're in the, you know, the school area, you know, with, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff? Um, do, you, do you get any kind of pushback for people that don't want you to shed light on these kind of stories? Not so much in, 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 or not as much in Miami. I think people know us here. I think that's helpful. You know, you go out into the, <laughs> into town with a cocaine cowboy shirt or a dog oh, yeah. shirt or the U shirt or something. You, 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 there's, there's a lot of common ground you can find with people here. And then, and then obviously just by virtue of our subject matters and our geography, um, you know, uh, uh, people are familiar with the work or know the work. And so that, that makes things a little bit easier working on cocaine cowboys too in uh, Oakland, California, was a little bit different. We did get chased by a guy with a gun once or twice. Oh, uh, wow. Not, not the same guy with a gun, two different guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, is there any, um, you know, any, any, since you cover so many broad, you know, different topics and subjects on these documentaries, is there anything that you've ever thought of or that's been presented to you or anything that you wouldn't like dare touch, like a topic that you wouldn't go there? I don't think so. There's nothing <laughs> off limits here, right? <laughs> Not, now, listen, not off the top of my head. I mean, I suppose right. at some point, you know, you, you, someone could suggest something and we'd be like, oh, shit, no way. Um, I don't think that's ever happened. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why we do or don't do a project. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think we've ever, there's ever been an instance where we're like, oh, how about this story? Or what about this? or what? And where we're just like, oh, no, too hot. <laughs> you know, like, again, there's a lot of reasons why we say, no, we, we can't do that or shouldn't do that right now. Um, but but never because it was never because it felt it felt too hot. So, gotcha. um, yeah. Now, I did have a guest on once. Uh, her name is Saria Iacona. Um, she's with uh, she actually has a company, uh, Guardhouse Productions. And, um, you know, when I, when I spoke to her, you know, I kind of asked her about um, getting into the filmmaking business and things like that, um, you know, advice for people and stuff. Um, h- how does somebody, if they're listening, you know, who wants to do what you do for a living or kind of get into this field, um, if you had to give them like one goal to work towards, to, to get, to, to take a step into this, I mean, you know, would you say, Hey, you need a lot of money or you need connections or, you know, just start and do it. Like, is, is there a particular goal that someone could work towards before they even delve into, you know, a field that you're in? Well, 
I mean, <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I would say you have to be intellectually curious. You have to know what's going on in the world. I taught a college course very briefly. And, and the first question I asked every single class was, what's going on in the world? You know, you just need to be well-informed. You need right. to know what people are talking about, what people are, are interested in. Um, you know, so uh, you just have to sort of be, be out there and, and, and be curious and, and keep up with the, with the news, uh, you know, wh- whatever it may be, politics, pop culture, crime, um, and, and, and understand because I remember I said, you know, you got to find a good story and then tell it well or find right. a good story and not, and not fuck it up. So <laughs> if you're going to do that, you need to know first how to identify what's a good story and then two, how to tell it, you know? So like, so, so anything that will help you do that, anything that will help you uh, be well-informed and identify what truly good stories are, what people would actually be interested. And you know, we made Cocaine Cowboys. Nobody in the documentary business, nobody in, in the distribution business or the movie business was the least bit interested in that story. They're like, who's going to want to see this? So, cra- <laughs> you know? so crazy. And, yeah, and we thought, like, I don't know, it seemed like a great idea, you know, living in Miami, like dealing with real people and, and, and what we all are interested in uh, and, and the types of stories that, that we like to hear about. It seemed like a no brainer to us. Right. Everybody else didn't understand it, you know? So, like, you need to know how to identify those those trends, you know, understanding that that, um, you know, nostalgia cycles run in about, you know, 20 year periods, you know, kind of knowing like, like what, what not only what's interesting now, but what's the next thing as well, that, that stories that people are going to want to, going to want to hear about. And right. then of course, how to, how to apply your skill set and what you bring to the table as a filmmaker or a storyteller, that's going to best serve that, that story. Absolutely. And so, you, you know, you mentioned there, you know, as far as, um, you know, what kind of content you want to produce and stuff. And it, it's, it's obvious. I mean, you, you have a pretty, I mean, I, I guess a hundred percent freedom from what I see, at least with, with what you make and what you create. Um, no one's, I don't think is telling you what to do, of course. Um, and, and not everyone has that freedom, right. When it comes to, you know, directing or writing or whatnot. Um, and I, it's not really, I don't really want to ask you how important is that freedom? Cause it's obvious, but could there be a price tag put on how, how valuable that freedom is to you as far as what you create? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you only, you, 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 these days it's a little bit tougher because a lot of our stuff is 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 commissioned, right? Which means we go out and we sell it to somebody. You know, we say we pitch them a project, and then to a certain extent, you know, the buyer, the network, the distributor enjoys final cut or at least a lot of say and sway to the uh-huh. creative uh, shape of the project, which can get problematic, right? Um, but when you work with folks like ESPN, by and large. Um, I think so far in four out of our, or three out of our four projects, um, because we did an ESPN 30 for 30 short, we're about to start a new 30 for 30, which will be our, our fourth feature and our, our, our fifth 30 for 30 altogether. Um, you know, in most of those projects, there's there's an incredible amount of autonomy and creative respect, um, where it's just kind of like, you know, you tell the story, they give us some notes or some feedback, and then we take the best of it, you know, leave the stuff we don't. Uh, necessarily think works and and that's an extraordinarily productive uh and successful creative you know relationship um, right so some of them are just more productive than others so you just have to i think just have to you know establish a reputation you know no, people understand that you have a you know a knack for telling good stories or, or that's your skill set and then and they respect that and then you just gotta kind of know who you're you're going into business with you know <laughs> I mean, yeah that's the 
Yeah, I always wonder that, you know, as far as like, because like you said, you've worked with ESPN, uh, you have Netflix, VH1. You know, I always wondered if they're, you know, by, by you know, putting your content on one of those uh, providers, was there, you know, a, a more effective audience or something that you reached or a bigger impact that you made? You know, I mean, choosing those different outlets, I always wondered that, um, you know, whether that happened or not, or if it was just kind of the, you know, the way things worked when you did the work. Um and, and and just curious, you know, some people don't know you were also um, a childhood actor. You did acting as a child and everything, um, which is interesting to me. And I know you, you stopped that when you were, when you were young, right? I mean, you didn't continue to do that at all. Um, yeah. But is there I, I, when I was about 15, 15, yeah. So I mean, was there anything that you feel that you took away from that, like that that has you still as the person you are now, like that you know plays a role in who you are now? Because it's an interesting childhood. Obviously, not everyone can relate to. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I worked with one of the earliest projects I ever I ever did was with um was with um uh, Ron Howard. Oh wow! Uh, and and so he directed a movie called Parenthood that I was in. We shot it in Orlando in about 80, 1988. and he um uh was of course a child actor himself. Yep. You know, and 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 so it was kind of cool to be able to um I guess kind of watch him and see that like there's a possibility here. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, oh wow, like this is cool. This, like, you can. There's kind of life after childhood actordom, you know. And, right. Um, you know, and 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 uh, and here's a guy who was very, who was a very normal guy. You know, it was not like oh, like sort of stereotype of a child actor. You know, like a drug addict or, or anything like that. <laughs> um, you know, so it was like it was kind of cool to um, to be able to, to 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 see that firsthand, and then and then to be inspired by that. And I think that's probably ultimately why I wanted to become a a director or a filmmaker is, is that is, is, is Ron Howard. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you, you know, what was that inspiration? But you're so, so it's Ron Howard, you guess kind of seeing that as, you know, as a child, like you say, kind of inspires you and, and what keeps you going though today? Like what keeps that motivation burning? But you know, Oh, Oh, I was going to say, I was going to say, uh, cafecito. <laughs> Cuban coffee. Yeah. Actually. If you're from South Florida, you know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Cafecito cowboys over here. Caffeinated cowboys over here. Um, heavily, heavily caffeinated. But, um, but again, no, I, I think you know, I, and I think this reflects probably in my in my Twitter feed. You know, I'm kind of uh, uh, very interested in social justice, very interested um, in equality, very interested. I think predominantly in, um, in government uh, transparency and accountability. Um, you know, a lot of our work relies upon public records. You know, police reports and and crime scene photos and, and and our government, who we finance to do the work of its people, of us, um, sometimes gets proprietary about their work product. But it's because it's not their work product; it's our work product. You know, right? They suddenly go, "Oh, you know, you know, uh, uh, no, you can't see my emails. Oh, no, you can't see this material." It's like, no, no, this is our shit. This is not your shit, you know? So it's the arrogance of power. Like you get into a position, you think like, oh, I don't, the rules don't apply to me anymore. It's like the old, you know, the old uh, 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 Nixon, you remember Frost Nixon, you know, he's, uh, uh, those interviews, he, he said, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. And, and everybody has that now. It's people will tell, when the mayor does it, that means it is not illegal. When a police officer does it, that means it is not illegal. When the president does it, everybody sort of gets the idea that once you're in government, you're in power. It's like, oh, it doesn't. If I do something that's against the law, it's not illegal because of my, my virtue of my position. Right. And that's just not talk about entitlement. 
You know, talk about an entitlement class. I mean, remember, remember when you worked in government, that used to be public service. They used to call it public service. You're a public servant. Right. Now it's like it's a lifetime gig. It's like the best pension plan ever. It's the you know, it's like uh, municipalities, including us down here, are going broke because we pay more people in the uh, uh, in the public sector to not work than we pay to work. I mean, how can you? No business could possibly afford that. So I'm very passionate about about these issues, and that keeps me going. Is to find stories. That at least to some extent, as you, you know, as you sort of observed earlier, shine a spotlight in some darkness, you know, a part of the map or a part of the world or some cultures that people don't necessarily know exist or get a lot of shine, you know. And, yeah. and, and I think by, by doing that, you sort of discover the way things work. I'll give you a great example on dogfight. Uh, this is now 2008. It's a lot of years ago. This is this is an entire, you know, this is this is two presidential terms ago. This is, you know, two, <laughs> That's a big change. Like, yeah, this is like three elections ago. Um, so including this one, but um, we had Miami-Dade police in, in, in West, in the West part, you know, Southwest part of the county, in, in, in Perrine, who showed up to a scene of one of these backyard fights. And uh, uh, we were there filming and they basically cleared the streets and then moved on. Everybody thought like, oh shit, they're going to shut this down. You know, <laughs> right, you know? right, and, right. But, but the fights hadn't started yet. It was like it was like at least an hour before the fights were starting. There was a big crowd out on the street. They were trying to clear the the, the roads after the Martin Luther King Day parade and were doing their jobs. And then they moved on. And everybody was like, "Well, why the hell did they shut it down?" And I was like, "Well, first of all, there was nothing to shut down yet. You know, you right? Know, not um, yet. <laughs> yeah, second of all, it was on private property. They hadn't received any." or 911 calls, you know, they were just walking, they were just driving the streets and they saw like this crowd of people and said, you can't have this crowd of people, you know, blocking, blocking the public roadway, obviously. Um, and I got to tell you, if they had thought, I'm sorry, if, if someone had called the police later and said, oh, there's a fight back here or somebody's getting hurt, but they would have showed up, you know, and done their job. But right. the bottom line is, not only did they have some level of like plausible deniability, but number one, there was not, no crime was occurring at the time other than blocking the roadway, which they got cleared up very quickly. Um, but more importantly, it was actually community policing, which is the conversation we're having in America right now. They were, they were, they were acknowledging the culture of, of, of this community. They, they know that whenever Dada 5000 had a backyard fight event, they could, they could cruise the streets of Brine and they weren't seeing drug deals on the corner. People weren't robbing anybody or, or committing any crimes because everybody was in the backyard. You know, right, watching. right. And the only people getting hurt were really just the two consenting adults in the ring who, who signed up to, to fight each other, you know? So, like, there was a certain acknowledgement of just, like, whether or not it was the letter of the law, which I believe it was. Everything they did was, I think, legitimate and legal. But the bottom line was um, they were community policing. They were saying, we have to adapt and adopt based upon our relationships with people that were policing. And I thought they did the right thing. I thought it was a textbook example of how the police you know, need to, you can't, it's not the same rule book that can apply to every single block or every single neighborhood or every single, you know, uh, community or municipality. And, and, and I thought, you know, I thought, and, and we, we captured that because we were there. It started a little bit of a discussion. I think most people thought they did the right thing because listen, if they were going to shut it down, what they actually would have done is squeeze all of the people out of the backyard who were peacefully gathering for this event and push them all out into the street. And then what would have happened? Cause chaos. Right. <laughs> exactly. They might have escalated the situation that didn't need to be escalated if they just cruised on down the road and said, okay, let's, you know, if we get a call, we'll respond and do our jobs. If not, there's nothing illegal happening here right now. 
let's go on, you know, let's go on with the rest of our days and, and, and let the people go on with the rest of their days. Nobody got hurt. Nobody went to jail for no reason. Nobody got tasered. Nobody got shot. That was it. And it was, it was just great. Police work. They made like a real human decision. You know what I mean? Like that really, like you said, it was more of a community, you know, decision, like where it made sense. Um, instead of just, you know, they could have been like some cops and, or, you know, like some people may have felt be harassing or more, they could have went further into it. And like you said, they, I think they made a right decision. That was on the documentary, like that you're talking about. And they, they, they didn't need to, they, they, there was no need to escalate the situation. And right. They, didn't. they did the right thing. Right. You know, they, they actually did the right thing. And I, I will defend them uh, with my last breath. I know some people saw the doc and were like a little bit pissed that why didn't they do anything? And I'm like, they did do something. They did the right thing. Exactly. They made the right choice. They had a choice and they made the right one. Um, and, and that, that was a, a, a big moment. And like you said, it caused a lot of discussion, but I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it was uh, the fair decision to do. Um, now I did also, I uh, had one, I had a listener question that I did want to get to you also, because, uh, I have a, a listener named Jeff who actually wrote in, um, he knows you're a, a hurricanes fan from all the, you know, the documentaries and stuff. Um, so he, he basically wanted to know how, how you felt. He's a, um, a seminal FSU fan. Um, so oh, he wanted sure. to know how you felt, of course, about the rivalry, which, you know, I, I actually went to one game in Tallahassee, which was uh, FSU versus Miami, and it was by far the craziest game I've ever been to in my life in any sport, um, which this was like 10 years ago even, but it was the craziest game I've ever been. I've never seen anything like it. Um, but, but you know, he says that FSU has been has been winning the series of late, you know, and so do you feel like the Hurricanes are, are ready for a rebound here in that series, or do you think they're going to keep taking that, as he says, an FSU beatdown? Well, I, I think he's right. I mean, but in that FSU has obviously <laughs> been in the uh, the pendulum has swung towards the semis, yeah. but but this is but this is what always kind of happens, you know. Like each of the each of the teams kind of like dominates a decade, you know what I mean? Like yes. that's kind of the that's the trend of these things, you know. And if you and if you look, you know, uh, uh, obviously most recent. Let's let's start when it really started in the eighties, you know, <laughs> where 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 Miami won the eighties basically. Uh, Miami won the 90s, uh, or I should say, I'm sorry, the first half of the 90s, but then FSU kind of takes over. You know what I mean? Right. Um, then you go into the zeros, the early zeros, like Miami, 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 Miami. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then all of a sudden you get to the 10s, literally like 2010, and you've got FSU up to So it's, it's kind of cool, like the way that goes. You know, it, it, it like, it, it, it go. the pendulum does swing uh, back and forth. And and listen, we're now, we're well due. What are we, have six in a row now? Yeah. Florida State? <laughs> yeah, so... And, 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 and more importantly, since 2005, what, Miami's only won twice, right? So, like, in, in 10 years, uh, over 10 years, Miami's only won twice. So, it's time now for a correction, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, yep. for a course <laughs> correction in, in, in the history of, of, of the rivalry. But that's what makes it interesting, and that's what makes it uh, uh, exciting. I certainly think now, now more than ever, uh, the Hurricanes have a legitimate opportunity, you know, to turn it around. I, I, I think that, listen... How how close did they come? It's been uh, close. You know how close last year. <laughs> last year was close. The year before. So it, yeah, it's not like it's blowouts. It's not blowouts. You know. No, it has been. It has been blowouts though. Like since two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, been getting closer. The last, the last two years have been getting closer. Now the Canes. Uh, that's what I think. You know, now the Canes have a serious coach. FSU doesn't really have a quarterback, and you know, and this is this is what happens. You know, the 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 trend. The trend shifts, and, and I think now would be a great time. I mean, would, you know, it would just be, and, and I think if, if, if Miami could win this year, uh, you'll start to see, you know, their streak uh, uh, come back uh, uh, on, in the rivalry, which is, which is phenomenal. 
this is a chance for them to sneak back in. And like you said, it's, it's, that's, that's the beauty of sports. You know, you're, you're up and then you're down and then you come back. You know you're going to come back up at some point. You know what I mean? Um, now, I do want to, uh, we play a game on here called Foul or No Foul. Uh, which I wanted to um, play with you here. I basically, what we do is I get statements from people just on the internet, social media, whatever, or I just make up some of my own. Um, I'm, they're not necessarily fact. I'm just, that's what I'm doing here is I'm going to throw this statement at you. And then if you agree with it, it's no foul. And if you disagree, it's foul. It's that time again. <laughs> Let's play another round of foul or no foul. Gotcha. Okay, so it's cool. foul or no foul. Right, so exactly. Foul or no foul. If you agree with it, it's no foul. But if you disagree, it's a foul. All right, so, and these are just kind of random. They're all over the place, whatever people submit. So um, the first one uh, that was given to me is Trump will make America great again. Foul or no foul? Foul. <laughs> and do you want to go into why or do you want to just leave it at that? <laughs> no, I thought that was the game. So you don't go into why. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you can if you want to. It's up to you. <laughs> no, let me not elaborate. I think it's abundant. Gotcha. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, the next one. Uh, college athletes should be paid foul or no foul no foul no foul all right number three and this is uh like you said kind of something that the uh we're facing right now as a country um cops murdering people many being of course african-american is a direct result of racism foul or no foul that's 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 complicated <laughs> that is and <laughs> if you want to leave the answer at that i understand <laughs> Yeah, that, that's complicated. I'm, 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 I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like the, 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 the ref with his hand on the yellow flag, kind of playing, <laughs> you know, replaying the, the, the play over in his head uh, time and again. But, uh, but I, I, I think um, you certainly have a systemic issue uh, in this country, not just in, you know, in, in, in police work, um, but, but, but you also have to take each one of these incidents uh, individually. Yes, the totality of them has become overwhelming and mind-numbing and depressing and, and, and demoralizing for a lot of people uh, in this country. Uh, but you, you have to take them each one at a time. So right. You sort of have a blanket statement like, like, like they're, they're the direct cause of racism is, is complicated. But I will say, you know, you go back and, 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 you know, law enforcement has for, you know, for its entire existence uh, been used as a mechanism by the state to oppress uh, people, uh, particularly, I mean, any minorities that, that feel that they are, 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 are underprivileged or underserved and are protesting for, uh, you know, for greater representation in, in, in any nation or any process. So, you know, you, when, when people Google back and, and they say, oh, you know, Miami, uh, Miami uh, America rather, looks like the 60s all over again, you know, the imagery of police officers uh, uh, beating down uh, peaceful civil rights marchers and protesters um, it definitely it, it does take on that air, you know. It right. becomes a it becomes this sort of ongoing symbol of of brutality, and 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 that's problematic. I mean, that that's part of the the PR battle that that, that police departments uh, have to have to deal with now. And and I'm sorry, I've had to deal with it forever. Um, and and what has to happen is people need to just stop fucking killing each other for no reason. Exactly. I don't care. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what you do for a living, you know, what your job is. You just need to stop pulling guns out and shooting other people for no reason. You know, if, if there's some legitimate self-defense claim, if you're legitimately threatened, but we see these videos, you know, whether, by the way, whether the police officers are, or, or, uh, are pulling guns and, 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 and killing people, it's not okay, no matter who does it. And the idea that 
because of your job, you confront on, oh, I felt scared for my life. That's not justice either. You know, we, we, need, a, we need a fair system where, where, where the law applies equally and evenly to everyone, regardless of color and occupation. I 100% agree with you, man. I 100% agree. All right. The next one, a little more light noted. Um, the next statement is jeans only need to be washed if they are visibly dirty. Foul or no foul? I would say I just, you got to do the smell test. <laughs> so, so it, it would be, yeah, it would be, it would be, do they smell foul or not foul? On that. So, so I, I think the answer, the answer is no foul, but I would take it one further because you can even wear visibly dirty jeans as long as they don't smell dirty. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice little twist on it there. So they can, they can even be dirty. They just can't smell dirty. Okay. I gotcha. That works. That works for me. (laughs) (laughs) The last one, um, you know, through your documentaries, through all your interviews, everything you've done, you're, you know, you're a man of truth. You know, you're not afraid to challenge, you know, opinions or anything like that. You know, you're a good person, all that good stuff. You're a smart dude. So with that all being said, Billy Corbin will one day enter politics. Foul or no foul. Oh, in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm political in that, you know, I provide commentary by way of the, the Twitter feed. Oh, yeah, thing, definitely. But I, 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 but, but, I mean, it, would I ever, you know, help run somebody's campaign or run social media for a campaign? If you mean, like, get involved in politics at that level, uh, I, I would never say never. But if you mean run for office, um, that's, that's not my bag. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think, uh, I, I feel like what happens to a lot of people, we talked about this, you know, the context of the arrogance of power once people get into those positions. I, I think it's why so many people of all colors um, and, and, uh, and, and creeds uh, believe that, that Barack Obama's presidency has been such a disappointment. I think when you get to – when you get into power, you realize that the bureaucracy is so entrenched and the, the corruption and cronyism and dysfunction is, is uh, so – it's impenetrable and, and, and unalterable. And you realize that you can't actually change it. Um, not one, not one man, not one, one woman, and certainly not from inside. So I think I'm much better suited. And, and it's a shame because I don't want to discourage good people from getting into politics because that's part of the problem. You right, know, right. Good people, good people don't get into politics. A lot of sociopaths and narcissists uh, get in, get into politics. The problem is even when good people get into politics. They just eventually become bad government. You know, they just eventually they become the bad government that you rail against and campaign against. You yep. know what I mean? And, and so, um, so I, I, most people don't like. I said, even good people uh, are kind of wind up waving the you know the white flag of surrender. Um, so I just feel like I could, me personally, anyway, feel like I can affect more positive change from outside. You know, outside the system pushing against the system than I ever could or, or I've seen anyone ever be able to accomplish from inside the system. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that, um, you know, to, to make a change in, like you said, the system or, or in politics or just in the world that we live in today, um, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, a political figure. I think that you, you know, you yourself and many other people, you know, make, um, you know, a change in some way, shape or form through the work that you're doing anyway. So I don't think that it has to be done. Uh, I was just curious to what you would say. Um, so what is next for you, Billy, what's on what's on the plate? You know, what what can we expect coming down the pipeline? You know, here in sometime soon, I guess. Uh, well, next up, we've got a six-hour miniseries uh, for Spike TV about the uh, uh, about the. I remember John McAfee. I don't know if you remember the McAfee anti yes, software. Yes, absolutely. Back in the 90s. So, so McAfee um, uh, went on a series of uh, 
like millionaire misadventures and eventually was a person of interest in the murder of his neighbor in Belize, uh, a guy from Florida by the name of Craig Fall. Um, uh, McAfee eventually fled the country and never really answered uh, any of the police's questions or, or the charges. And um, we're, we now, we're now kind of working on that on that whole story. We spent almost three weeks in Belize earlier this year to get to the bottom of what went on down there, spent a lot of time with McAfee himself, interviewed a lot of people uh, about this whole story, and that's going to that's gonna drop in the fall. Uh, then, as I said, we've got a, uh, a new 30 for 30 uh, coming out. That won't be until uh, uh, about late summer of 2017. That'll be next year. Uh, then we've got Dogfight 2, as I said, we're working on, and finally, the long-awaited uh, new Cooking Cowboys title. Um, we're we're working on uh, we're going to try to get done this year for the lease next year. That is Cocaine Cowboys Los Muchachos, the story of Willie Falcone and Sal Buda, the biggest, uh, most prolific, successful, and well-known Cuban cocaine smugglers uh, in history, who of course worked out of uh, out of Miami. Wow! So there's a lot on the plate, and, I, and all of that sounds good, man. So I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. Um, you know, like I said, anything you touch, man, for me is good. But I know, you know, some people maybe need to be sold on things. But everything just sounded good to me. Um, now, you know, I can't recommend you know your work enough. I, I do it all the time, and I and I'll continue to do that. Um, like I said, you you open up worlds that you know many people don't see. You shed light on things that otherwise remain in the dark. And, you know, I, I, again, I can't thank you enough for that. And I, and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, it, can you, can you tell the listeners kind of where to find you, you know, whether it's on Twitter or things they can help you support and stuff like that? Absolutely. Just hit me up on Twitter uh, at Billy Corbin, B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-R-B-E-N. That's again, C-O-R-B-E-N. Uh, stop giving me shit. I'm Billy Corbin, <laughs> former frontman of Smashing Pumpkins. Every time <laughs> some shit goes down with like, what is he? He's like Impact Wrestling. What is he a part of now? He's Some like, something like, crazy, man. Yeah. So <laughs> like, or TNA. Is, what is it? Yeah, it's like it's uh, it's TNA. Yeah, that I think it's TNA. Yeah. So like every weekend, people are giving me shit for something Billy Corgan does. Like <laughs> TNA wrestling. Like give me give me a break, you know? Like <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, it happens all the time. But just hit me up there. Of course, you go to cocainecowboys.com. Uh, find our website. Um, but uh, Twitter is always the the best place to uh, to keep up or reach out. I do my best to try to you know, reply or interact with everybody who uh, tags me or whatever on, on Twitter. Sometimes it gets a little bit, a little bit difficult to, uh, to keep up these days, especially with so many projects going on. Absolutely. Um, before you go, um, I always ask the guest, you know, if there, if there's anything that they can leave the clock dodger listeners with, um, you know, even if it's just a message, it could be about anything we didn't talk about. It doesn't matter. Um, just anything. If they walk away with one thing from this conversation that you would want them to leave with today, any, anything at all. I want everybody to remember, and I know it's stating the obvious and knows this because as they're, 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 they're either listening to this on, on their cell phone or, or, or looking at their cell phone while they're listening to this, but um, you know, you have one of the world's most powerful uh, uh, not only communication devices, but production devices, post-production devices, distribution devices. I think everybody has a responsibility now to be a, uh, a citizen journalist and you have the ability, um, or, and, and I should say the responsibility of being able to broadcast live all over the world from your pocket um, with one of the best quality cameras uh, you probably ever owned in your life. And so I, I, I would just encourage people to, um, to, to embrace that opportunity, but also uh, be weary of the responsibility um, and, and, and go out and, and, and look for uh, interesting stories to tell and look for injustices in the world that, that, that can be exposed just simply using this device you're carrying around in your pocket anyway. 
That's a great gem right there, man. I really appreciate that. And again, thank you for coming on. I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you taking time out of your day. And uh, we look forward to uh, everything that you're about to bring to us, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Have a good one. What an honor to have Billy Corbin on the Clock Dodgers podcast. I can't express to you guys how much. I mean, I guess I did, you know, turn talking to him. But, uh, you know, everything Billy Corbin does, um, I love. You know, he he, he does his he does the dirty work. He, he, he does everything with quality and, you know, all these interesting topics, um, even things that you think you're not interested, you know, in going into it. Um, you become locked in once you start it. So um, it was an honor to have him on the show. Um, just, you know, personally for me, because I, I've looked up to, you know, so much stuff that he's done and thought, you know, a lot of his work is amazing. Um, if you missed it or if you didn't get it written down or, or locked into your, uh, your Twitter, um, to contact Billy, you want to hit him up at Billy Corbin on Twitter. Um, dude is super active on there. Like he said, he tries to, you know, respond as much as he can to people. You know, he obviously gets a lot of, uh, a lot of action on there, so it's not easy. But uh, shout out to Billy again for coming on the show. I can't thank him enough. Um, shout out to his awesome uh, assistant who who helped me make this happen. Um, she was great, you know, to deal with. Uh, so so big shout out to uh, again to Billy, uh, to Rack and Tour, to everything that they're doing over there. Keep checking out. You heard a lot of the stuff that he's working on. So um, keep checking out. You know, keep checking those things out. Keep you know looking to support him in any way you can. And of course, shout out, like I said, to his assistant Allison for helping you know make the connection here. Um, I apologize again, guys. You know about the quality. Um, it's definitely not something you're used to, or you know, that's typical of the Clock Dodgers podcast. So it was just something I couldn't. You know, it, it happened, and the, that's the way. That's the way. You know, it happened, and I couldn't fix it after the fact. Um, so we just rolled with it. And, you know, obviously you see why I rolled with it. It was a great conversation and I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want it to just, you know, fade, fade off into the ether. So you guys have it here. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I appreciate you for listening all the way through. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, it means a lot to me. I know you guys are, uh, you know, big time, big time fans of the show and supporters of the show because you made it this far. And that means a lot to me. And I can never, uh, you know, I can never put a... Uh, you know, I can never really express it through this the way I want to, um, but it, but it means the world to me um, because we are making this Clock Dodgers movement huge, bigger, badder every day, and uh, I, I can't thank you guys enough for that because you guys are key to making that happen. Um, what I'm going to do is, f- uh, for people who have listened all the way through and, and bared with the you know the little quality issues and everything that we dealt with, um, I have some Clock Dodger wristbands, and so I want to give one away. Um, to a listener but what i'm going to do is i'm going to um give you a word here now and then on the next podcast i'm going to give you another word and the uh the first person who i'm trying to think maybe the first person who hits me up uh by email um or yeah email is the easiest because not everybody has twitter or instagram or whatever the case may be so um the first person to email me both words um will get a free clock dodgers wristband i'll mail it out to you um as soon as i can so um that that's what we'll do so the uh the word for this episode is going to be dopamine okay so dopamine is the word um that's just the word i'm coming up with because i know nobody else will just come up with it at random when they find out about this (laughs) so dopamine is the first word and then there will be a second word that you'll have to just look for randomly on the uh, next episode 
And uh, like I said, as soon as you get those two words, um, shoot me over an email. The first person to do it will be someone who is going to be getting a free Cloud Dodgers wristband of their color choice, black, red, green, or blue. And uh, maybe I'll throw a couple stickers in there or something too uh, to make it all worth it for you guys. So again, I appreciate that. Um, the one thing I wanted to, to go out with here on this outro was I read an article on, let's see where it was. I want to make sure I cite the right person here for this. Uh, the New York Times. New York Times. Uh, I'm trying to see if it has the, editor, the writer's name here. Robert H. Frank um, wrote an article about, it caught my eye when I seen it come across a timeline, the incalculable value of finding a job you love. Um, obviously, you guys know. Uh, you know at this point, that's why Cloud Dodgers is here because, uh, you know, I had to find something that I loved, you know, and that's what this became. And you guys love it, too. And that's why you're listening. And it's become a really big, awesome family. But the article caught my eye just because obviously I, I have a, a high interest in seeing things that you, you know, when it comes to jobs and jobs you love. And I always try to get that over to you guys and spread that passion, that motivation to other people. Um, even though you have it, you have to get it, you know, into the hands and the minds of as many people as you can. You just got to keep planting that seed. Um, so the interesting thing about this article was it mentioned how um, money isn't always the driving factor and that it's more than money um, that, you know, that, that, creates you know you to be happy at your job or you to stay at your job and a job you love um and it just it just mentions basically how you know it's i'll actually read some of the some of this here for you word for word um it says it's not just that more money doesn't provide a straightforward increase in happiness um as economists have long known jobs that offer more attractive working conditions greater you know autonomy for example or better opportunities for learning or enhanced workplace safety also tend to pay less though um, one of the most important dimensions of job satisfaction is how you feel about your employer's mission suppose you're weighing two offers and this is interesting um, two offers for jobs right in advertising copy one is for an American Cancer Society campaign to discourage teenage smoking. The other is for a tobacco industry campaign to encourage it. If pay and other working conditions were identical, which job would you choose? Um, they said they once posted this question to Cornell seniors about uh, who are about to enter the job market, and almost 90% said they would pick the American Cancer Society position. And when asked, when he when this person asked them how much more. Would the pro tobacco job have to pay them before they would actually change their minds and, and, and work for um, the shitheads? Basically, uh, the demanded they demanded an average salary premium premium uh, of more than eighty percent, um, and so they go on to mention how you know how it makes sense because um, people you know want to leave their jobs, they want to go home after their nine to five and and feel you know satisfied that they've done something right, not just did something but something right. So, you know, they mentioned how the fact that although, you you know, they call it moral satis satisfaction, um, they say that alone, though, won't pay the rent. Um, so, you know, that's not, that's not enough. In, in other words, um, they do mention that um, Philip Cook, Philip Cook, who is an economist, um, has argued with this gentleman that um, those who become really good at what they do are capturing a much larger share of the total income in almost every domain, leaving correspondingly smaller shares available for others. The moral is become an expert at something. Um, they do mention how it's easier said than done. Um, you know, to become an expert, obviously, at anything is not easy because it's going to take a lot of time and effort. But um, I, I guess 
you know, I guess the main point here is that, he, you know, they go on to say the happiness literature has identified one of the most deeply satisfying human psychological states to be in uh, is called flow. It occurs when you are so immersed in an activity that you lose track of passage uh, of the passage of time. If you can land a job that enables you to experience substantial periods of flow, you will be among the most fortunate people on the planet. What's more, as the years pass, you will almost surely develop deep expertise at whatever it is you've been doing. Um, again, they go on to say at this point, even if a few people, <clears throat> excuse me, even if few people in any one location place high value on what you do, you may find your services become extremely valuable uh, economically. That's because technology has steadily extended the geographic reach of those who are the best at what they do. Um, there's, of course, no guarantee that you'll become the best at what you choose to do or that even if you do, you'll find practical ways to extend your reach enough to earn a big paycheck. But by choosing the, uh, to concentrate on a task you love, you'll enjoy the considerable portion proportion of your life that you spend at work, which is much more than billions of others can say. Um, they go on to say, again, you'll have bills to pay, so salary matters, but social science findings establish clearly that once you have met your basic obligations, it's possible to live a very satisfying life, even if you don't earn a lot of money. The bottom line is resist the soul-crushing jobs promise of extra money and, so, and savor the more satisfying conditions you'll find in one that pays a little less. I mean, fantastic article. I, I highly recommend everybody go read it again. That is from Robert H. Frank um, from the New York Times. And uh, it, it's just a good article. Um, and again, I know it's tough. I know people uh, to make the sacrifices. It's not easy. People have jobs. I mean, not jobs, excuse me, families, kids, bills. And so, you know, people are afraid to take that risk or, you know, jump to that, to that, you know, that, that risk because they're afraid of what they may be sacrificing in the meantime. But I can't explain. I mean, you have to do it. You have to do it because if you don't do it, you're going to regret not trying it. Um, and, I, and of course, I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying to do that or, or take less, you know, hours at work or whatever the case is, but whatever you do. Um, even if it's just the, you know, the the time you have after work, late at night, you have to stay up a little later. Um, you know, you have to hone your craft. You have to work on things um, that you love because your goal at some point is to replace your nine to five with something you love. And I don't mean nine to five hours. I'm just saying, you know, that regular job that you have um, doing something you don't care about. It's so important. It, it changes your life to do something that you're passionate about, that you love, and that means something to you. Um, and so, like I said, that great article um, explains, you know, how important that is. So, guys, look into that. Again, I appreciate you for bearing with me on the uh, the rough audio issues on this episode. It will not happen again. Be kind. Be great. Keep dodging. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to stop by ClockDodgers.com and follow us on Twitter.
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime.